The vast majority of clients are satisfied with the service that they receive from their solicitor. Occasionally, this is not the case and solicitors need to know how to deal with the situation when it arises. The causes of complaints often mirror the causes of professional negligence claims. Host Julian Morrow chats with New South Wales Legal Services Commissioner John McKenzie about solicitor complaints. They look at the key causes involved, how a client relationship can get to this point, how solicitors can form an appropriate response and thereby reduce the likelihood of complaints. John McKenzie, thanks very much for speaking with us. It's a pleasure, Julian. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, John, you're the Legal Services Commissioner of New South Wales, which means you get over, what, 2,500 complaints a year? What are the most common complaints that your office receives against solicitors? Two ways to, to, to give people some information on that. First of all, the areas of law that generate the most number of complaints to my office Number one is the top of the well and truly at the top of the list is uh, family law and de facto relationship mm. law and everything mm. to do with that. Probably won't come as too much of a surprise to people when you think about the emotions involved. The second area of law that is uh, second to that is wills, probate and family provision cases. Uh, again, family orientated and again, the sorts of areas of disputes that really generate incredibly white hot emotional responses to the issues. Coming down from that, there's uh, generally civil, home, house com- conveyances. Criminal is fairly low down, quite frankly. It, it's, it's family law is 20% of all the complaints we get. Uh, wills and probate is 13. Once you get down to general civil matters, it's less than 10%. And criminal law is, is down around uh, 4 to 5%. So that's just a rough, a rough look at it. The, the other side of looking at it is what particular behaviours do people most complain about Mm. and quite frankly number one when it's boiled down to it is communication either lack of communication or poor communication or rude communication or or just inexact communication so it's a huge thing we we will probably come back to next after that would be what are essentially claims of negligence not terribly serious matters of negligence but that's essentially what they're saying. You know, one way or another, they say that my lawyer didn't know what he or she was doing, and uh, sometimes that may be right, and quite often it's not. But we very quickly bat them away, say we're not the people to deal with that. Law cover is. So we're we're very glad that law cover exists and does such a good job. But the other uh, one that's up there the same as as negligence is let me guess. Is it, yeah, it's got to be bills, Perceived. doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, perceived overcharging and actual overcharging, yeah. it's huge. Well, when I say it's huge, it's its on a level with all claims of negligence that come into our office. So it gives you an idea of um, the prevalence of it. John, how often are complaints made by the opposing client compared to complaints from a solicitor's own client? More often than I ever expected before I came into this role Mm. uh, because I'd never been involved in legal regulation before taking up my appointment some seven or eight years ago. So it was quite a surprise to me uh, how many do. But, again, they're mainly confined to the areas of family law, quite frankly. It's very sad that people are looking for someone else to blame for what they perceive to be an outcome other than what they are absolutely convinced was due and owing to them in all sorts of ways, not just financial but child-rearing ways and emotional ways. Mm. So, um, yeah, so, so the area of, of, of complainants 
either who make up our existing or former clients or opposing opposing clients makes up over 66% of all complaints that come in the door. A small percentage comes from judiciary or the bench, magistrates, and there's also a, a small amount that comes from, shall we say, uh, friends of or associates of, you know, the, the a party um, who, mm. who was, they perceive was badly de- dealt with by a lawyer who should have done better. Yeah. Uh, your last annual report highlighted the disparity between the documented research showing a high incidence of sexual harassment within the legal profession, but yet quite low numbers of formal complaints received. I was just interested, is, is that disparity still as great today as when your last annual report came out? What are the trends in that area? Unfortunately, it still is exactly the same. Um, it's going to take a long while to turn this huge cultural uh, problem, which I believe the legal profession we've, we have, and I, I own it as well. I've, I've been a lawyer and in the legal game for over 40 years and plus now, We've all got to own it, and especially those of us who've been in it a lot more. Quite frankly, we haven't taken it seriously enough and, and dealt with it properly. And I'm hopeful that there are winds of change coming in that, that may affect that change. But uh, but formal complaints, people are quite understandably, when you look at the nature of what a legal career is all about and how it is almost invariably the less experienced and far more junior lawyer or non-lawyer in a, in a legal practice, so, you know, secretaries, clerks, etc., they're the ones predominantly are the targets of this uh, dreadful behaviour. And it is unlawful behaviour and has been for since uh, 1983 in every workplace in Australia. But um, So we've got a real problem that we as the profession who pride ourselves on being the upholders of the rule of law and I know that uh, phrase has had a few bandied um, experiences recently, but yes. um, I'm a great believer in, the, in what I believe is the true version of it, and it doesn't involve uh, other things more recently. But uh, we've got a real problem when we can demonstrably be shown to be not actually following that, uh, that, that obligation imposed on all workplaces right across Australia since 1983 when the Federal Sex Discrimination Act um, came into play. I regard it as a really serious issue. Um, I'm trying to do lots of things about it. One of the things I am doing about it is providing uh, better avenues for people to make informal and confidential complaints with a view to at least getting a data map on where it's happening so we can better target our preventative and educational uh, efforts, but also so that we can start to build up a level of trust and confidence with those people who have been targeted by it so that in due course they may feel confident enough to go on the record because they all realise that if they're taking on a senior lawyer, that lawyer has invariably uh, either got the means himself, and it's almost invariably a he, or have got mates from law school days who will do it at mates' rates, and they're going to be cross-examined by a senior counsel or a QC in a court of law or a tribunal. And um, that's enough to turn any young lawyer's knees pretty weak, and I understand that. And I'm well aware of the danger and the potential that, uh, that such a person could actually be actually even more traumatised by the experience in trying to follow through such a complaint than the original behaviour. So we've got to be very careful about it and very supportive. 
But my my belief, my attitude and, and uh, approach to it is we've got to address both sides of the problem. Firstly, give supportive and confidential avenues of reporting it and, and complaining about it. On the other side, of letting the uh, continuing perpetrators know that their time of impunity is coming to an end mm. and people like me are going to be coming for them because it's got to be zero tolerance from here on. I can't strike people off. Uh, I've got to take a, an application to the tribunal and then if I'm successful there, invariably to the Supreme Court. But I'll do it. And, yeah, it, it is serious and, and we've got to do a whole lot better. But I, I am pleased. I think it's fair to say on this topic, Julian, that one of the most decisive things that I've seen happen in, in the profession's response to this issue has been the realisation that this is a really serious problem subsequent to the uh, reporting of the situation in the High Court of Australia and the former Justice uh, Dyson Hayden and um, that whole situation and the wonderful statement made by our current Chief Justice and the exemplary way in which she dealt with it and it is a great exemplar to all leaders within the legal profession as to how it should be dealt with, supportive, confidential, um, call a spade a spade and don't beat around the bush. Mm, thanks for your comments on, on that, John. Uh, this next question is definitely pertinent to sexual harassment complaints, but I, I wanted to address it more generally. Uh, what proportion of the complaints you received are referred on to professional associations for handling? Oh, well, um, on, on sexual assault, very few, but some. It depends on the, on, on the circumstances of, of uh, the, the respondent lawyer who's been complained about, but... Uh, in the overall total, less than 20% of all complaints we receive are referred onto the professional bodies. We tend to refer a greater proportion of those complaints we receive against barristers to the Bar Association and the Bar Council, and that is because, in large part, uh, the, uh, the barristers are so jealously protective of their reputation that my uh, surmising of it is that they will take at least as hard line a response uh, as that that I or my staff might take. In relation to the matters against solicitors, we refer to the Law Society, um, everything to do with trust accounts. And, and that is, you know, they're, they're some of the most serious matters, but they have the gun trust account inspectors. Mm. There's no point in someone, an agency like mine, trying to reinvent that expertise and wheel. So that is a large part of the matters that we refer to the Law Society, albeit some others as well. But, uh, of course, if I do refer a matter to either of the professional bodies and they perceive a conflict of interest, then that may be because of the, you know, a person in the deciding uh, conduct committee, whether it be in the, um, the Bar Council or, or the uh, Law Society Council, may have a conflict or even be a person themselves who's been complained about. It is, of course, inappropriate for them yes. and they send it back and we take over it and see it through to the end. But uh, I believe that it's good to have the professional bodies involved to in a meaningful way in the regulation of the profession because it means they bring a better acceptance by the profession to the whole operation of it, whereas it's far easy just to say, oh, oh that Commissar McKenzie and his, and his stormtroops, it's important to know, even if they don't believe that I actually strongly believe in the legal profession and what a great role it does play and even better role it could play in society, it's important for them to know that they've actually got skin in the game. And I think that that's really important. Hmm. 
you wrote in the most recent annual report that complaints are getting a lot more complex. Well, why is that? Too easy to send reams and reams and reams of information digitally, quite frankly, is the, is the first and obvious answer to that, is that um, now that people have a capacity uh, as recently as uh, last year to lodge complaints online via our, our website, people no longer send us targeted documentary evidence that they think they have for whatever's gone wrong. And so here's, here's the equivalent of five uh, ring um, pull folders uh, of documents. You'll find what I'm talking about somewhere in there. Well, sorry, we don't have that much resources. We need to go back and dig and get a lot more specific than that. But that's one of the reasons is that the absolute avalanche of mm data that sometimes we are flooded with. Um, the other things to say is, is that the law is, as time goes on, becoming more and more specialised. And there are areas of law that necess- we have some very good, wonderfully talented uh, lawyers working as legal investigators in my, my staff. Uh, we're not many, but they are good. But they may not necessarily be across the latest developments in um intellectual property, just to to, to name one field that is advancing at a a very fast rate. Mm. So sometimes we need to get uh, assistance on on the technical parts of that, you know, on on what is the most appropriate, efficient behaviour and performance by lawyers. So I think it's a combination of that, but uh, predominantly it's because people just say, well, here's everything I ever got on this to do with this so-and-so, you work it out. And when we say, well, we can't work it out, and um, some unkind epithets come back. Well, John, look, I've got to say, I'm enjoying speaking to you now, but I could understand it if the average practitioner maybe wasn't that keen to get involved in a conversation with you or at least your, your offer. So how uh, could you say from you know, having looked over so many complaints, what are the best things that a solicitor can do or any legal practitioner if they hear an initial complaint to sort of constructively regain a client's confidence? Look, uh, a couple of things. Uh, first of all is, is this. Uh, having worked as a, a, a criminal defence specialist advocate for, for many years before I took this, this posting, I know from my own personal experience how emotionally upsetting it can be when you receive complaints from people who you think you've absolutely gone way beyond the usual call of duty mm. for. And when you're a criminal defence lawyer, you've got a lot of ex-clients with a lot of time on their hands, let's just put it that way. So, you know, I know what it's like. And what I'll say to everyone is that when you first get notification of a complaint, it's understandable and okay to be upset. Do not reply when you are still upset hmm. because that is the number one first trap for, uh, for new uh, players in this field, and that is that they fire off uh, an email to me or my, my investigating staff, and in the contents of that email, sometimes, rarely... Uh, sometimes they come close to it and I give them the benefit of the doubt, but sometimes they are so offensive to my role and my staff that I seriously have to consider initiating uh, a a new complaint for them being so obnoxious to the legal regulator with which they have professional ethical obligations to comply with. So don't make that mistake. Put it in the top drawer at least for a day. The other thing I would say to people is this, is that... um, Get advice 
before you uh, make a response, unless you think it's you can easily assist it by saying, "Look, there's been a, there's been a misunderstanding of what the situation is here. This is what that this is what the the case is really about, or this is what happened from the other opposing side, or this is the client's instructions that led led us to this point. Be direct. Don't be argumentative in your response because it makes our our work at the Office of Legal Services Commissioner much easier if we can pass on in whole an initial response from a lawyer saying, well, we've received this response. Have a look at it. We think it deals with all the issues that you've raised, but we'd like to know from you. So don't have in it, this person is, is a crazy, raving lunatic because even if we excise that part of it, it usually comes through in the rest of the expression of the response. Be loyally, be professional and get someone, uh, especially if you're, you're young and new at it, with a whole lot more experience to cast their eye over your proposed written response before you press send. That's the best advice that I can give to you. The other exp- advice is on perhaps the other end of that spectrum is don't put it into your basement vault and pretend that it will just go away because, unfortunately, I'm not allowed to go away. I have to follow through. And if you don't reply, then this starts to escalate things and it gets more serious from there. So be reasonable, but don't reply straight off if you're upset. But don't say, oh, well, that can wait till next year if yeah. you're sitting here in uh, in the middle of June. So, um, you know, take, take a sensible path about it and just realise this is that, uh, and I'll say this, and I think it's great for lawyers to hear this, is that uh, out of the 2,500 uh, average number of complaints we receive a year, close to 50% of them are closed and dismissed very quickly, either because they're, they've got the wrong idea, they're without substance, this has simply needed to be communicated and explained better or they're complaining about the wrong person. So, you know, don't assume because you've got a complaint made against you that, you know, time's up. Yeah, so cooling off period's a good thing, but don't let it go on ice. I'm sure Law Cover's keen to hear from insured practitioners at the earliest possible stage as well. But, John, is it is it best to try and resolve the complaint directly with your client at the earliest possible stage? Quite often I think so, yes, but look, you need to be making a judgment, A, about the, the the seriousness of the complaint that you've been made aware of. If it is of the nature that it is really making allegations of, of almost borderline criminality against you, I don't think it's, it's really worthwhile to be trying to deal with it directly with the client. Hmm. You're best to go through the formal complaint process with my office being an investigative middle person, if you like, to at least mediate the communications. However, if it's a, a relatively small matter and it's not a serious sort of uh, intentional dishonesty or um, self-serving type of complaint, then yes, good idea to try and deal with it with the, 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 the client. And this particularly applies to the uh, allegations of overcharging. Don't get up on a high horse explain to people but also explain to them but yes you do have the opportunity um, to make a complaint but there are time requirements about that but this will bring in the area that we do need to talk about and that that is is that particularly solicitors really need to be mindful of your ongoing and serious obligations about cost disclosure because under the legal profession uniform law you've got a very serious obligation to keep your client um, in a situation where they can be said to be giving you informed consent 
to continue in the matter. And so uh, we need to deal with that. And as you're saying, yeah, that's clearly one of the major areas of complaints made. John, if, uh, if it does come to a complaint being made to you, uh, how does the process work from there? First of all, an assessment's made on the on the face of the um, complaint, and you've got to remember we're only getting the complainant side of the story at that stage. Were this to be accepted or, or be able to be proved uh, through evidence, is it of a, a seriousness that is is going to have to be uh, treated as a serious disciplinary allegation with a potential for um, proceedings such as uh, heading towards actions for unsatisfactory professional conduct or the big one that no one wants to go down on professional misconduct or if on the other hand it's in a, a the, the second category of complaints that, that we use and that is of consumer level complaints delays communication overcharging then we will try and act as in a way a shuttle diplomacy between the lawyer and the complainant so that once we are sure that we understand what the complaint is really about from the complainant we'll approach the lawyer put it usually by writing first so that they are not caught cold by a phone call Um, but the idea is to say well look let's try and cut to the chase of this because i have instructed my staff to take very seriously the obligation we have in consumer level matters to try and resolve them as speedily and as informally as possible. But that doesn't mean that we cut corners. It just means that we are actively trying to find a, um, a spot and usually some uh, compromise from both or at least one party is going to be required for that to agree to some sort of an outcome that people can live with. Now, lawyers should understand that sort of attitude because essentially a hell of a lot of uh, civil litigation um, uh, and areas around that and considerations around that uh, really come down to exactly the same principle is that you're never going to get everything you want, but let's see if we can get uh, something that you can live with. Mm. And um, so my staff will, will explain to as much as best we can to the complainant um, whether they are a little bit misguided in what they thought that they could properly demand or expect of the lawyer. And at the same time, in communications with the lawyer, they will try their best to explain, well, this client says that all the, the last cost update they got was uh, $5,000 less than what you've ended up charging them. How do you explain that? And um, so it's, it's a matter of trying to lead people to a middle path on those consumer matters. On the disciplinary matters, we've got to take a, a, a proper investigative approach and say, well, we're looking for evidence and we find serious evidence, we're off to court. How long does it usually take, say, for the consumer matters to be finalised? We aim uh, – our, our goal is to try and have um, – over uh, 55% of all consumer complaints completely uh, done and dusted within six months of receipt. We do reasonably well on that, but in COVID times, that time uh, has blown out because everything takes longer with COVID. And we also need to be more, I think, quite rightly empathetic with lawyers, especially in small practices, that they've got so many other difficult demands on them uh, with the COVID times and keeping a practice going. We do allow longer response times than perhaps we ordinarily would. In relation to disciplinary matters, if it's going to get as far as me taking it to the tribunal and then on to the Supreme Court, we're usually looking at two to three years. Mm.
Mm. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned COVID. Uh, has the pandemic changed the sort of mix of complaints that you've been receiving? To, to a little, uh, to an initial extent, yes, but I think it's already of such notice and concern to me that I, I, I do want to take this opportunity to mention it. And it's around the whole um, quite uh, quite productive and, and positive uh, changes to the legal requirements about the witnessing of, of formal legal documents, yeah. especially family family estate type documents, whether they be wills or codicils or powers of attorney, etc. Uh, but also some other serious documents like affidavits and, and so on. All the practitioners, the solicitors that deal in that space, or they'll be aware that the regulation, the Electronic Transactions Amendment regulation, is back in force and has been, you know, during this second lockdown, reinstituted from last year. It's fairly uniform right around Australia. Can I suggest to people, if you want to just see how seriously the courts will take um, the proper and I mean proper, almost to the minute detail, obligation of doing what's involved because I think the courts are coming to this question from the point of view, well, we're only really happy with this electronic witnessing uh, because of COVID times. They obviously would much prefer us to be still doing it in person, but if that's the way it's got to be, then we're going to hold you to every little detail that is required. And there's a, a Supreme Court judgment from earlier this year in Queensland, from the Queensland Supreme Court. Um, the name of the case is Sheehan, S-H-E-E-H-A-N, and it's worth anyone who wants to sort of really motivate themselves to make sure they do the remote uh, electronic witnessing right. I go and have a quick read of it, but I'll give you the, the takeout of it. And the takeout of it is, is the will that was in question in this case in the end was waved through, but you will appreciate the huge hurdles that the lawyers had to satisfy in order for it to be waved through because there was one or two very small and on the overall view of it, very minor deficiencies in following the strict procedure. But I think if, if anyone wants to just appreciate what I would call the heightened attention to detail needed, go and have a look at the Sheen case of early this year. It, it's reported in uh, Queensland Supreme Court 89 of this year's reports. Thanks very much, John. Uh, now, you've already alluded to some of the key things in terms of minimising the risk uh, or, or the likelihood of a complaint being made and the ongoing disclosures in relation to costs are obviously very important. What other things should practitioners keep right at the front of mind in terms of trying to minimise those risks of complaint? Get organised. That's the best general advice I can give to you. I mean, I, I'm... Yeah. I'm not going to pretend that I was, you know, 100% organised all through my practising career. The oh, Russian come on, John, you're the commissioner. You can pretend now. It's part of it, 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 one of the benefits of office. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, look, one, you know, you, you can take that view, but quite frankly, this is the real world. Yeah. But get organised because it'll help you. In the end, it will save you time and angst. That, that's my serious advice to people. And that goes from having systems in place in, in your practice uh, to keep track of matters, 
you know, diary stuff that all legal practitioners and the the legal secretaries who need to can have access to so that you're not double booked. Keep track of, of when things are due to be done through orders that you've got an obligation to do or any undertakings that you give. Importantly, when it comes to things such as conflicts of interest, just, just have it done. It's, it's, it's got to be done every time and so it can be ticked off. Um, don't make the mistake of saying, oh, no, I'm sure I don't have a conflict. Check. Those are the sorts of things to start with. And, and, and remember that al- although law should not be done in a rush, you're living in the real world and people are more and more used to having, shall we say, their wants, desires and demands satisfied a bit earlier than perhaps 10, 20 years ago. So timeliness is really important. So think twice about overloading yourself with matters such that you're not going to get to any new cases you take on until well down the track because that may be a recipe for long-term demise of your practice because if the word gets around, Mackenzie and his mob um, take forever and go somewhere else and uh, you might pay an extra dollar but you, you'll you'll be happier so bear that in mind I think the other thing is communications it's, it's one thing I know in my legal education never was actually really dealt with but it is such an important skill for lawyers to have and, and you don't have to be you might not ever go anywhere near a courtroom but you've got to be a, a, a more than a half decent communicator with your clients if you want to be able to t- take a, 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 a practice forward in this day and age. And that's because society's changed. Society no longer is prepared to say, oh, I've put it in the hands of my lawyer. He'll make sure he does the right thing. Um, he'll let me know when it's all done. Well, no. That, that's just so old thinking that even someone like me is a bit embarrassed to say it. So can I say, um, one of the things that really sticks in people's gullets is that when, for one reason or another, it may not because may not be because they're particularly dissatisfied with the current lawyer, but that they have cause to need to change lawyers mid uh, mid matter, and they go through the proper process and ask for it to be transferred to the new lawyers. People really get upset when that is given such a low priority. They think, well, stuff you, I'm going to complain to the commissioner and make this client's li- uh, this lawyer's life as hellish as possible. So bear in mind, don't don't think that just because you may think you've lost a client, you could lose a hell of a lot more clients through the bad word of um, word of mouth that, that they will go on about if you really delay in the proper transfer of, of matters when you've got the. You know, the, obviously you need the authority, the written authority and, and all the rest of it, and if needs be a security for your costs. But attend to it quickly because think of it as insurance. You don't, you may have lost this client. You don't want to lose every person, this, every, you know, associate or everyone who reads this person's social media feed because that's what happens. It's, it's quite amazing the, the change in, in the word of mouth now. It is so instantaneous People need to be really aware of that. So timeliness is a good one. Communication, just to come back to that, I didn't deal with it properly, and that is to say you need to be tailoring your communications to your client. You need to become a good judge of person. What type of client is it? Is it a complete newbie or is it an experienced frequent traveller? If it's a complete newbie, maybe you need to err on the side of direct, simple explanation and be very 
make sure, ask a few questions at the end of it to make sure they've actually understood correctly what you've said the case is about and what you propose to do. If they're a frequent flyer and they have come back to you because they like the work you do. So uh, horses for courses. And that fits with the principle-based approach in the legal profession uniform law, and that is your obligation is to put each particular client into a position whereby not only the beginning of a, of a matter placing it in your hands, but all the way through the ongoing prosecution in the more general sense of their matter is they need to be in a position of informed consent of agreeing not only to what you're proposing to do, but the estimated, and it is only an estimate, but the estimated cost of doing that. And that's why this an automatic system whereby you can really easily update your cost estimate on a matter that um, for whatever reason, from something the other party's done or something your client has asked and has brought up something that you weren't aware of when you first got instructions, have a real simple, easy way, usually by email these days, because a lot of clients, especially in COVID life, I don't know what it will return to afterwards, the massive uh, predominance of all communications is done electronically these days with clients. Mm. Have an email template set up so you simply put in the file number, the, the matter number, and say due to and fill in a couple of words, actions by the other side. They've taken a, um, a, a you know, a, a complicated discovery path or, or they're putting us to the test on this procedural point. We, we need to renew what we're saying is our new estimate of cost expenses because what I tell you is the, the main generator of complaints when it's cost-related is what I call the nasty surprise of final invoice that is out of kick with what that client was expecting. So take your client with you on the journey. Prepare them for it. Um, If they say, well, no, this is all getting too expensive, well, you need to put to them, well, the alternative is is that you withdraw from the matter now perhaps um, and uh, live with what it was that you um, wanted to uh, uh, achieve or allow the other party to achieve what it is that they're trying to. So you need to be careful. You need to be delicate about it. I'm not to say that you just tell them take it or leave it, but they need to be explained so that they have a, 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 at least an, an estimate of what they can reasonably expect because I'm, I really strongly believe that it's that effect of when they open that, that final in, uh, cost invoice and see the figure and, and it's, it's not good news and perhaps the case didn't go too badly but didn't get everything that they wanted, which is yeah. ordinary part of life, they're going to say, well, this is outrageous. He, he didn't update me on this rising cost. He should have let me know I'm not going to pay it. And that's mm. where it all comes from. Well, thank you for updating us, John. And hopefully as a result of this conversation, there'll be a little lighter load on the Office of the Legal Services Commissioner. And I'm sure that all the practitioners who don't find themselves having to deal with those processes will be happy for that as well. Thank you so much for joining us, John McKenzie. Thank you very much for having me, Julian. And I I, I regard my ultimate goal in this job is to do myself out of the job. Um, so... Uh, I really believe that, you know, I'd love to try and minimise the complaints. There will always be complaints, though, because unfortunately a very, very small number of lawyers do do the wrong thing. But uh, in in the greatest space of things, I'm a great supporter and believer of the legal profession. I think we do a wonderful job on the whole. We can improve in some areas. 
we've mentioned some of them today and uh, I just um, I just want to encourage everyone especially the the newer members of our profession um, is uh, approach it as a, a wonderful uh, voyage of discovery uh, a, a career of legal practice and I encourage you to to do your very best Thanks very much, John. That's John McKenzie, the Legal Services Commissioner of New South Wales. Thanks for listening to Risk On Air by Law Cover. Join us for the next episode and subscribe to stay up to date.